You can turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians, book of Ephesians. We're just taking a little break from Colossians, and we've been, last week we started our little series here, Living Faithfully in a Chaotic World, and we talked about our mindset, and we mentioned how important it is to take every thought captive. Uh, The world is competing for our thoughts each and every day. We're inundated with information, some of it good, some of it bad, but the important thing is is that we're to filter our thoughts through the Word of God. And so last week we saw in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 13, how we can take our thoughts captive. And we basically said three things we need, first of all, to evaluate how we process our thoughts and our emotions. We need to be active about that. You can't just be willy-nilly. And there's many examples of mental and emotional and, and spiritual struggles throughout the Word of God through very uh, unique individuals that God used, but they still had issues. And so sometimes we need to evaluate our own mental stability at times because if you're just listening to what's coming in, uh, a lot of times it will drive you crazy. Secondly, we said that we need to recognize, we need to learn to recognize that we aren't meant to face our troubles alone. Not only is God with us, Christ is with us, the Spirit is with us, but that is why God has provided the church, the local church, so that we can fellowship together. And it's amazing to me how many pastors have lost lost sight of the importance of a church meeting together for not only the teaching of God's Word, but prayer and fellowship and Bible study. And uh, it just seems that they decided, well, we won't meet for a couple years until this pandemic gets away. (laughs) Well, who knows, right? We don't know. Um, I heard some pastors read some notes from a meeting I was invited to go to, which I did not go to, but... um, It was a Zoom meeting. (laughs) I didn't attend because I just just didn't feel led to at the time. And it was with some health officials and things like that, and they were talking about how the church is adapting, and and some of the churches were saying, well, we don't see us opening up till maybe the end of 2021, 22, for in-person meetings. And then... When I read part of the notes, it said, and when we do meet, it won't be like it was because we probably won't be able to sing as the body of Christ anything for two or three years because of this virus. I mean, it's just insane. Just insane. Now, I get it. You want to be careful. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to social distance, social distance. If you're sick, stay home. We get that. It's, It's... But we need to understand that you're asking people to deal with things in this world that have never, people have never experienced what's going on in this world. Complete shutdown of everything, (laughs) right? And then you're saying, well, by the way, you can't even fellowship together as a church because, you know, that, that could be harmful. Well, I would say that any harm that might come from us meeting together, um, falls way short of the harm of not meeting together. And I know that we believe that as a people and as a church. And so we recognize that we aren't meant to face our troubles alone. We come together. And then the third thing we said is we need to be honest with ourselves and with the Lord about how we're thinking and what we're thinking. And that's a very important thing. And so today we're going to move on from our mindset to our provision our provision, that he is able. It doesn't matter what happens in our country, in our government. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. God is still God. He's still on the throne. And it's very important that we understand this. And so we want to look at today living faithfully as God is our our provider because he is able. He is able. I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read just a couple verses out of Ephesians chapter 3. And it's just two verses, but there's so much in it. And probably a lot of you know these verses very well and uh, use them in your own life. But he says, Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forevermore, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you bless it to our hearts and minds as we look at this text together this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes and other places actually that God has created everything to go through seasons. Would you agree with that? There's a new season that's been thrust upon the world, the season of COVID, right? Well, how are we going to live in the season of COVID? Uh, we have a new administration. How are we going to live with a new administration in our own country? Um, you know, you can look in, at this complete world and in, in country and, and really get depressed real quick. Or you can say, you know what? This is a new season of opportunity that God has put right in our lap. I mean, we live in one of the most liberal, godless areas of, I would say, the world. (laughs) Not even the country, the world. And God has put us here as a church, Bible-believing, unwilling to compromise, for a purpose. He's put us here for a reason. You know, companies, a lot of times, they'll offer their customers new options have you noticed this? They're doing this more and more. There's, there's more ways. And, and the way they describe the new options available to them is if you have ESPN, what do they have? They have ESPN Plus, right? Everything's plus now. Hulu Plus, YouTube Plus. Everything is plus. Disney Plus, right? You got to have Disney Plus. All these things. It's crazy. And see... I think that we're entering into a season where God says, you know what, I don't want you just to lay back and do nothing. I want you to take advantage of the opportunity that's before you as a church, as a people, as Christ followers. And I want you to understand that as you walk through this period of time, you're going to need more patience. You're going to need more fortitude You're going to need more faith, more prayer, more unity, more perseverance to get through the times ahead than you ever needed before. We're going to need more passion. And so when you think of these things, I, I stopped and I said, okay, what does God want from us for this period of time? What does he want from us? What is the the vision of God for the church? And as I started preparing a message along those lines, I started thinking, wait a minute, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we think of the vision of God, maybe we need to think about the God of the vision. (laughs) Because so many times we jump the other way and, and we forget, wait, we've missed who God is through all this. And these two verses, 20 and 21, are for some of you probably just off the chart. They're the ones that you've probably memorized. They're ones that are go-to verses when when things run awry in your life. And and Paul here is so excited to write this letter to the church at Ephesus because, because he loves these people. He's won them to Christ. He pastored them for three three some years. And he hasn't seen them for a while. So he's excited. To write this. And so much so that he tells them to even, hey, you know what, don't wait for me to come to you. I, I, why don't you come see me? Because he's afraid maybe if, if he goes to see him, he's not going to leave. He loves them so much, and the Lord had him to go other places. And so he's writing this, and he's reminding them what God has called them to, for what God has called them. Now, remember, at this period in time, in the time, in the history period of the church, um, for centuries, the Jews believed that God was going to send the Messiah, right? And who was the Messiah going to be for? The Jews. That was it. They didn't think anything about the Gentiles. They thought, well, he's just going to come and he's going to rescue Israel. That's his sole purpose. But then all of a sudden, think about it, Jesus comes 
And he says, well, wait a minute. My ministry is not just about the Jews. I'm reaching out to the Gentiles too, and I expect you to do the same. Jesus says, no, I've come to the world that's filled with sin. For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes, wherever, whoever, they can have, it says, eternal life. Now, the Jews didn't catch on for a while. And when they did catch on, guess what? They really got ticked off. Remember all that? It happened in the the life of Christ. Um, And it wasn't until finally Peter awakened and he began to realize and to see and to say what the Lord was doing through him. And, And he realized, you know what? This message of the gospel, this Messiah is not just for the Jews. It's not just for Israel. It's for the Gentiles too. And that's what this is all about. These are the, the ones here in Ephesus. These is, this is who he's writing to. He says, I came to you. God has called me to go after all non-Hebrews, those who are not Jewish. And I get to go everywhere for the glory of Jesus and for the glory of the cross and for the, the power of the resurrection. I get to win Gentiles, just like you in Ephesus. I get to win them to Christ. And then he gets to these verses, and he's reminding them that this is why he can do what he does. He just wants them not to get so caught up in worshiping him, thinking, oh, it's the Apostle Paul, the wonderful the Apostle Paul. He's diverting all the attention, and he's saying, hey, this is how I can do this. This is why I do this. And this is why you, the church of Ephesus, that's why you're partners with me, he says. And that's why I'm going everywhere to everyone. Why? Because I want to share that message of eternal life through the grace of Christ. And he points out here, he doesn't point to a vision. He's not giving them a vision, but he points to the what? The God of the vision. The God who's motivating him to do all these things. And so when he says here, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, all that we think, according to the power that's at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations now forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you read those verses and you go, well, I don't see what's so big about that. (laughs) If your soul's not stirred a little bit by those verses, then we need to do a reality check. You need to stop and say, okay, what are you you not not seeing here? Um, I want to simply look at three things, three basic things here in this passage. This isn't going to be rocket science. This isn't something you're going to go, wow, I've never heard that before. This is something that you're going to say, wow, okay, it's good that I am reminded of this, especially in this current situation we find ourselves as the world and even as the country. And so the first thing I want you to see here is the power of God, the power of God. Look at what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, the power of God. What, what is he saying here? And, and he, it's basically a doxology, right? It's just kind of in the wrong place. It's almost like it should be at the end of the book. It's the culmination of all that he has been telling them up to this point about God's limitless provision for his children. Limitless. Paul's saying there's nothing that God has not provided for you. And I've given you everything up to this point about that. And that's how Paul usually does. He, he, in his books, the first three chapters of Ephesus or of Ephesians, what's he doing? He's telling the people at Ephesus theology. This is pure theology, the first three chapters. It's who you are in Christ. It's what Christ has done for you. It's why you are secured as a believer. All these things. And he closes this section on theology focusing on the God who's behind it all. 
And so he wants us to see the power of God. It's a great doxology that focuses our hearts and minds on the praise and glory of Christ. But look at how he introduces it. Now on to him. Now on to him. It's not about us. It's about him. When the Holy Spirit indwells and subsequently empowers us as believers, because the Bible says that when we come to Christ, Christ has indwelt us. Um, His love masters us. God fills us with his own fullness through the power of the Spirit. When all those things are complete, then he is able. On to him. He has to do that work in your heart, in your life first. You can't just use this verse and say, well, I'm just going to do far more abundantly than all I can think and all I can do. No, it doesn't work that way. It's him that's working in you. That's why it says now on to him. So until all those conditions are met, until you have come to Christ and you have submitted your life to him, and you said, God, I'll do anything, no matter the cost, no matter the place, I'm going to do whatever you desire me to do. Until those conditions are met, when they are met, God's working in us is unlimited. If they're not met, it's limited. It's that simple. John chapter 14, Jesus said this in verses 12 to 14. John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, listen, the works that I do, shall he do also. Now think back, and if you don't know, go back and read through the Gospels, and you'll see some of the incredible things that Jesus did. He said, the works works that I do, Christ said, he shall do also. Who is, who is the he? He who believes in me. He who is a Christ follower. Who, he who has given up his life and followed Christ. But then he puts this little phrase in there, and he says, and greater works than these shall he do. Can you imagine, as believers, doing a greater work than what Christ has done. And yet, that's exactly what it says. That's the potential. That's the possibility. And he says, why? Because I go to the Father. In other words, I'm not going to stay here physically. I'm moving on. You are left here. I started this. You're going to see it through. You're going to do greater works even than I did. And there's no situation in which the Lord cannot use us, provided we are submitted, right, to him. So it's, it's him who does a work in us. It's him who truly shows us what he desires us to do. Now look, it says there in verse 20, now to him, and then it says, who is what? Who is able? Able, that word able is dunamai in the original language. You get the idea of what? Dunamai, dynamite, right? Power, incredible power. It means to have continual power by virtue of inherent ability and resources. That's what we have access to. And if you look at that verse, if you look at some commentaries, it points this out. I've actually written it out in my notes. I don't think it's in your, your, notes, your notes this way. But you can write it out almost like a pyramid. You start with the word able at top of the pyramid. And then you say able, he is able, able to do, able to do what we ask, able to do what we think, able to do what we ask or think, able to do all that we ask or think, able to do above all that we ask or think, able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And it doesn't even stop there. The final foundation of that pyramid would be 
able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is able. Little acrostic for the word able. A, you could put almighty. God is almighty. Able. Psalm 95 verses 1 to 7 say, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? In verse 3 it says, For the Lord is great. The Lord is a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, God is almighty. B, A is almighty. B is boundless. God is boundless. His love, his knowledge, his grace, his understanding, his mercy knows no bounds. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding, it says, is beyond measure, boundless. Joel, prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Return to the the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and, listen, abounding in steadfast love. It just means overflowing. So Abel, God is almighty. God is boundless. The L, I would write down limitless. God is limitless. Jesus himself told us that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. It says, but Jesus looked at them and said, what? With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's limitless. He believed that so much, he even prayed that in the garden in Mark 14, 36. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. It's not only almighty and boundless and limitless, but also everlasting. Everlasting. He's able because he's everlasting. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the what? Everlasting God. The creator. Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Even in Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God is able because he's all those things plus more. I mean, there is no question in the minds of believers that God is able to do more than we could ever even conceive. But as I look around the churches today, there's very few Christians that enjoy the privilege of seeing him do just that in their churches and in their own lives. Because they fail fail to follow the pattern that enables this process to take place. It's not their focus on themselves, it's their focus on God that matters. And that's what Paul was trying to get across. Paul declared that the effectiveness even of his own ministry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, My message and my preaching were not what? In persuasive words of wisdom. Could he have done that? Yes. But he says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. In other words, Paul is saying, this ministry that happens here is not because of me. It happens through me. It's because of God's power, because he is able. And even in chapter 4 of the same book, 1 Corinthians, verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in what? Power. Power. I think that we have grown a little short-sighted when it comes to the power of God. So we need to be reminded of it. Everything Paul did was because of God's power, God's working through him. 
and in the power of God, there was nothing within the Lord's will that he could not see accomplished. We need to be reminded of that. Because he's declaring that because it is the power of God at work. Think about it. Christianity was taking off. I mean, you had all kinds of people, carpenters, fishermen, tax collectors, everybody, leaving their things and they're following Christ, the Messiah. He, he literally turned the world upside down. Whole com- communities were turned upside down. And pretty soon, who was taking notice? Rome was taking notice because, hey, wait a minute. Who are all these people gathering in these mass, mass gatherings? They're following this individual. And lives began to suddenly change and being transformed. Cities and communities were turned upside down. And everybody in the world, world was asking the question, what is going on? What is this movement? And Paul was writing the Ephesians, and he's saying, don't forget, it's the power of God. That's what it is. That's what God is doing. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly. I think we need to readjust our thinking. I think there's a lot of believers who are facing a lot of discouragement because of the pandemic, maybe because of the election, because of whatever. Who knows? Economic outlook, whatever it might be. There's a lot of Christians that are, they're, they're not seeing this as a season of more. They're seeing it as a season of less. And unfortunately, that's not all that uncommon. I see a lot of Christians, even within good Bible-believing churches, when they are faced with hardship, when they're faced with trial, what do they do? They retreat. They retreat. When times get tough, some believers, instead of running to the church, what do they do? They run from the church. They're in the church, and they, 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 they have a trial in their life. And what do they do? The last place they want to go back to is the church. They run from the church. Now, our country is no doubt probably heading into some difficult times, a hard season. But this is not the time to retreat as believers especially. This is the time to double down on the greatness and the power of the God that we serve. I mean, if you think for a moment that you think that God is telling you, the voice of God is telling you, well, you know, just just be safe, tone down your faith a little bit, you know, as we enter this new year and this new season and, and all your serving and your praying and your giving and, and, you know, I just want less. I just want this one less from you as the church. If you think that's what God is saying, you're dead wrong. He's saying, I want more. I want more from you. And he's saying, it's not in your doing. He's calling us to more, but he's calling us to more, saying that I provided you the power, the means to do it. He's the God who can do far more abundantly. And we ask or think according, look at what it says, to the power. More according to his power, not ours. New King James puts that verse this way, and I love it. It says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Just incredible. Because you never see two adverbs together, exceedingly abundantly. It's kind of poor English, actually. But there's no other words to describe what Paul is trying to get out. It's almost as if Paul can't describe it with the words he had in his vocabulary. To transform lives, to empower marriages, to change families, to transform communities, to change the world, to win the world, to rescue the world, to bring people to God and reconcile the world with the creator of heaven. We need the power of God. We can't do that. So he says it's far more abundant. That word in the original language, it's just one word in the Greek. It's like Paul couldn't think of something, so he just invented a word. That's really what he did. It's only used in one other place, I think in 1 Thessalonians 3.10. It's three words jammed together. 
Huperek parasu is the word. Huper, which basically means above, exceedingly abundantly, infinitely more. It's where we get the word hyper from. You know anybody that's hyper? Probably got some kids that are a little bit hyper at times, right? You know what that word means. Hyper means what? You have high energy. They have overflowing energy. When everybody else is ready to go to bed, they're just waking up. They're good to go. See, it's not as if God's ability, God's power is just a little bit higher. That's not what he's saying. He goes, that wouldn't do. He's not saying, well, God's more powerful than you. He's not saying that. He says, Hooper Eck. We get the word exit from that. It's kind of an emphasizing. It's not just hyper, it's super hyper. It means to go beyond. It means to leave something and go to another. And what he is saying is this, the ability, the power of God, what he can do when you're following him and you're saying, God, do whatever you want, is immeasurably more than you can even possibly conceive of. Abundantly above all that we think or ask. He's basically telling us, you know what? You have to leave everything that you know. (laughs) You can't look at this logically. You're leaving all boundaries behind. You're leaving the calendar behind. You're leaving the schedule. We're leaving everything we know and we're exiting that which we were familiar with. And we're going to something so much higher So much more abundant, exceedingly abundant, in the ability and power of God. It's so much higher, you can't even dream about it. You can't even comprehend it. Your biggest dream about what God can do doesn't even come close to this. What he actually wants to do. You know, I was trying to figure out how to emphasize this, and it's just, it's almost impossible. But I remember when you look up in the sky on a clear night and you see all the stars, right? Just, you know, especially if it's dark where you're at, maybe out in the wilderness and you look up and you're laying there and you're looking. I mean, scientists tell us there's something like a trillion billion stars. I mean, I don't even know if that's a number, but they say it is. Sounds like something a kid would say, right? A trillion billion. Yeah, right. But it is. And you know what? The Bible says that God created all those stars at one time with one word. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing power. See, that's why it's important when Jesus says, I am the word. John John says, in the beginning was the word. Because with a word... God created a trillion billion stars. You know that just one of the stars in the Milky Way, just one, is five million times brighter than our sun. That's just one star in the whole vast Milky Way, which is just one of those trillion billion. It's crazy when you stop and think about it. So let me ask you, and God spoke all that into existence with one word. So what problem is it that you have right now in your life that you think God can't handle? Honestly? Really? What is it that you think is so big and so scary and so ugly that, I don't know, I don't know if this thing's going to work out, God. I don't know if you can pull this one off. I think I'll just pull up my tent and quit. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a church. I just want to quit. I just want to quit. It's over. 
Don't see any hope. Don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. We just can't see how this is ever going to work out. I don't know how this problem can ever be solved, Lord. Let me share something with you. It's the grace of God that allows us to have problems. It's his grace. It's the grace of God that allows us to have problems that are so big that, guess what, we can't solve them. We don't know how to solve them. And you say, wait, that's God's grace? Yes, it is. God is so gracious and so kind that he allows problems in your life that are so big that you can't solve them. The question is, why would he do such a thing? So that you have the opportunity (laughs) to say, you know what, God? I need you. I need you. This is bigger than me. I have to have God involved in this because this problem is so big. We think we have problems in our life because God is mad at us, right? When things, the wheels start falling off the cart, we begin to think, oh, wait, what, have I, what do I have to repent of now? What do I have to, what do I do wrong? wrong? God is angry at me. I'm in pain, got no money, got no job. That's his grace. That's his grace. Because what's happening is this. You're looking at your problem and you're saying, I just can't see how this is going to work out. I can't figure it out. Can't figure that out. Can't figure this out. The problem is this. You're comparing your problem in your own abilities. In your own thinking. You're comparing your problem in your own intelligence. You're comparing your problem in your own experience. And you're just, you're just concluding, you know what, this is never going to work out. I don't know how this is ever going to work out. And God is up in heaven going, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because you're not God. I think when God gives a vision to a church, the mission of a church, the mission of God for all churches is all the same, right? Matthew, it's what? Go make disciples, right? Win, win many for Christ. But the vision for different churches can be different because their body is different. And so God gives different visions at times, dealing with the ability and what he wants to fulfill through that certain church. But when he gives a vision to a local church, one thing you can be sure of, the vision is always bigger than what they can do. It's always bigger. It's so important. He gives the vision based on what? Not on who we are. He gives a vision based on what he can do, do through us. So he casts a vision, and then what does he do? He makes the people who receive the vision, the plan, desperate. <laughs> he makes them look at this vision and go, there's no way this is ever going to happen. We can't do this. I mean, when it comes to a local church, he doesn't give them enough money. He doesn't give them enough smarts. He doesn't give them enough power. He doesn't give them enough resources. He never gives them enough. Why? Why do you think that is? Because he doesn't want them to get to a point and say, oh, hey, God, just back up. We got this. We've done this for years. We we know what we're doing here. No. He doesn't want us to get to that point. He gives them problems that they can't solve, and he gives them plans so big that they could never accomplish it on their own. Why? Because then they have a decision to make, right? Who are you going to trust? (laughs) 
Who are you going to follow? I mean, we proclaim that we have a God who can do anything at any time for anyone. That's, any Christian would say that. Oh, yeah, God is all-powerful. He's amazing. I mean, he strung the stars out there just with a word across the sky, threw the sun in there just for... Divided up the water and the sand. He created everything. He's an amazing God. He can do anything. And then as a church, we... (laughs) Stop and say, well, let's just keep, keep doing the same thing. It's safe. We don't want to shake things up at all. We don't want anything to change, God forbid. See, God will never give a great vision to accomplish his mission to a church to change nothing. That's why he has us here as a change agent. He wants us to serve him more. You know, it's easy to gather together in a fellowship and pray, and it's easy to pray for our president when the president's our guy. (laughs) Oh, that's easy. Who are you going to trust now? Who are you going to trust when... Things don't look so easy. See, that's the season that God has called us to. And what got us here will not take us to where we need to go. Now, we don't change the message. The message power is in the gospel, right? It's lifting high the cross. It's declaring the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But we have to be a church that says, you know what, we're willing to do whatever it takes as a church and as individuals. Not trusting in our own ability, but trusting in the power of God. We want to do whatever it takes by his power. So he can do Huberak Parasu through us abundantly, exceedingly more than we could ever even think, even as a small little church. That's the power of God. That's what he's calling us to. But secondly, we also see here the power or the people of God. Not only the power of God, but look at what it says in verse 20. According to the power at work where? Within us. This incredible power of God is within us as believers. This power that threw the stars out into the sky with just a word. The power that created all things. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. See, this is what he was trying to tell them earlier in, in Ephesians. He says his power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And guess what? That power is in you. It's in me. We have to break out of the mindset that says Jesus is just some guy that comes and does stuff for us. He's called us to do things because he's doing it through us, not just for us, but through us. Newsflash, Jesus did not come and die to give you your best life now. That's not what he came for. He didn't come just to give you an easier life, a better life, a richer life. And, you know, it's not like he did a bait and switch. He said right from the beginning, man, you, you think I got a bad you think they persecuted me, he told us. Wait, wait till they get a hold of you guys. And guess what? They all died from persecution for the most part. But see, this power that God has given to us resides within us. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God gives us a power, not so we can come and sit in church. That's not why we have the Spirit residing within us. He gives us the power, it says, to be what? Witnesses. My witnesses. Now, yeah, do you need to have a witness here in church? Sure. 
Definitely. But I would say the greater need for your witness is out there where you work, where you go to school, with your neighborhood, with the guy at the grocery store, the gal at the grocery store, or the person that helps you at the gas station. God's power is God's, God's power in God's people always accomplishes God's purpose. God's power in God's people always accomplishes God's purpose. And that purpose isn't to have an easier life or a richer life. It's so that we can be his witnesses. And if there's one thing the world needs now more than any, at any other time, is a witness to the power of God. You know what God desires to do? I mean, if we will humble ourselves, if we will submit, if we will pray and come to God and say, you know what, God, use me anytime, anywhere, at any cost. No holds barred. He's going to make us witnesses right here. Right here in Redwood City. And then to the ends of the earth. It's the power of God working in the people of God that accomplishes the purpose of God. That's why we have a resurrection power in us, so that lives can be changed. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says this, I tell you, you are what? Peter. Remember this? You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Not on Peter. He's not talking about building the church on Peter. I mean, can you imagine building the church on Peter? In Bible college, as professor, they called Peter, pendulumic Peter. He's going swinging back and forth. One minute, he's ready to die. He dies for Christ. The next minute, he's denying him. That was just his life. But he says, no, I will build my church. And then it says this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you realize when Jesus said these words, no one had ever even heard of the church? Do you understand that? They probably thought, church, what's, what's church? Okay, we know temple, we know tabernacle, we know Jews, nation, church, what's that? What is the church? See, most people think that this verse is saying that when, when hell is unleashed on the world, well, those gates on the church, they're going to hold up. That's what they believe this is saying. It's not saying that. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is <laughs> when the church, my church, Jesus says, is unleashed on the world, even the gates of hell can't prevent it. That's what it's saying. I mean, it's a big difference, right? I mean, one picture paints the church in the world, you know, hold up, us four, no more, you know, bar the doors, you know, the world's coming after us. Well, Jesus said the gates of the church won't. No, that's not the picture. The picture is as the church gets out of these four walls and goes into a world that's lost and dying, that even the gates of hell can't prevent the work of Christ through his church. That's what he's saying. And I think it's, it's so important that we understand that. Because it tells us right here in the, in the text that that power is at work within us. And yet, a lot of Christians, man, they're... they're they're loading up on their toilet paper. You know, they got their cans of pork and beans and their water and they're ready, man. They're just going to hunker down and, oh, Jesus, just come. Come quickly. That's not what God calls us to. I'm not saying you don't want to be prepared. But on the other hand, we're called to be what? The salt. We're called to be the light in darkness. You can't do that if you just huddle together. Saying, wow, it's so scary out there. 
You know, if I say something, I could lose my job. If I say something, my friends won't like me anymore if they know I'm a Christian. I'll say this. I, I think in, in, these past, in this past year, the past four years, I think there's been more Christians who are frankly more afraid that somebody would find out that they were possibly a Trump supporter than they were a follower of Christ. What happened? And you wonder why this man is not our president? It's called idol worship, I think. It's called putting your trust in a human being. It's unfortunate. Personally, I think he was a great president. But you know what? God has a purpose in this. We can't oversee that. So we don't need to change up everything and just go hide because, oh no, it just doesn't look real evangelical friendly to the church anymore. We don't know what's going to happen with this new administration. Well, we need to get on our knees. We need to pray, pray for them. We need to pray that God would penetrate their hearts somehow with the glorious gospel of Christ, that they would be redeemed, that they would be repentant of supporting things like the slaughter of unborn children, that God would strike right in their heart and show them the error of their ways and show them their need for a Savior. That should be foremost in our mind. But look at what he says here in verse 21, and this gets to the glory of God. Not only is it the power of God, but it's the power of God at work in the people of God that carries out his purpose for his glory, not our own. It says, to him be glory. But then look at those next three words. Where? In The church. Are you telling me the church is not essential? I don't think so. Not according to the word of God. It's very essential. It's very essential. It says, to him be glory in the church. What is the glory of God? It's everything that God is. It's all his grace, all his love, all his holiness, all his wrath, everything, that is the glory of God. That's what makes makes up the glory of God. In the Old Testament, it was depicted through what? Remember? Shekinah glory, cloud, you know, right? And they would, they would all know, oh, that's the glory of God. You know, the whole thing with Moses and the, the Ten Commandments. You know, I mean, he saw the glory of God, right? To some extent. I think our job would be a lot easier if God would just provide that cloud. <laughs> and we could just say, well, there's a cloud. That's, that's God's glory. But he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't do it that way anymore. What does he do? He replaced the cloud with who? With the church. With you and me. And he says, now, I want you to be a display of my glory In a lost and dying world. To him be glory in the church. Well, how does that work? How has God put his glory on display in the church? I'll tell you how. Every time on a Thursday morning when women of our church are gathered to pray. For us as a church, as a country. That displays the glory of God. Every time as believers we gather together around the word of God, whether it be Sunday morning, whether it be Wednesday night, whether it be a Bible study throughout the week, guess what? God is putting his glory on display. Every time a spouse forgives their partner for something they shouldn't have done, and they don't deserve forgiveness, 
But you know what? They forgive him anyway because that's what God, that's what Christ instructs us to do. His glory is on display. Every time we answer temptation with obedience to Christ and not the flesh, his glory is put on display. Every time we are sharing the gospel with someone who's yet to hear, the display of God's glory is going forth. And he does it through you, he does it through me. It's not us, it's him working in us. Paul says that so, so clearly over and over again. It's Christ at work, what? In me. That's why he receives the glory. And he says it's in Christ Jesus there at the end throughout all generations. It's unending forever and ever. You can't put a time stamp on it and say, well, the glory of God stops here. No. (laughs) It's eternal. We have to stop and we have to ask ourselves as believers, are we going to just hunker down and and be afraid? Or are we going to realize that, you know what? Christ has provided, God has provided through Christ everything that we need. Everything. Christ is sufficient to meet our needs as an individual, as a family, as a church, as a nation, as a world. Don't look anywhere else. Look to Christ. And Christ will once again prove himself faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, right? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. Lord, that you provide for us a provision through Christ that we could never, ever experience anywhere else. Lord, you call us to a task that is so big. Even as a small church, it's so big. We can't do it. We're not sitting here this morning saying, yeah, we got this, no problem. No, we're, we're saying, Lord, we need to depend on you each and each and every moment. Not just to live a life that's honoring to you so that we are putting your glory on display. But then when you bring sinners together as the church, we're called to live together in unity, looking out for the, the needs of others and all the things that the church is about. And I think as a church, we do that well, but, but I think also we can't forget that your, your purpose for us as a church is not just to come here and have church. It's to break out of these four walls and to, to pierce the darkness with the powerful message that you know what? Jesus saves. That God has a son. His name is Jesus. And he came and he, he died for the sins of all those who would put their faith or trust in him. We need to get that message out. We trust you with the results. We can't save people. But we can surely in, introduce them to a message that can save them. A message of the gospel that's powerful to transform and change and forgive and give new life to, break the chains of sin and death and allow us to be the church unleashed in this lost and dying world that's on fire and going to hell quickly. But Lord, as Jude says, you you call us to pluck them out of the fire, that we should be concerned, that, that we should not just draw lines and silly political lines or social economic lines. When we die, Lord, the first first thing that we should be concerned about is who who is with us? Who did we share the message of the gospel with? It's not going to matter what job we had. 
one second after we're dead. It's not going to matter how much we had in the bank. It's not going to matter where we lived or what kind of car we drove. Our sole focus will be on things eternal. And the only things here on this earth that is eternal are the souls of men and women and your word. And so we just pray, Lord, that we would embrace your work through us. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, in Christ alone for their salvation, Lord, that you would do a work in their heart that they can't resist. That they would bow their knee to the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that they would trust you. The reason we don't trust is because we want to be in control. We think that we are in control. Guess what? We're not. We're not. We're not in control when we die. We're not in control how we die. We're not in control of so many things in this life. And yet, we believe the lie that somehow we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to yield up our own selfish desire for control, even as believers, Lord, and yield that to you and trust you and say, Lord, anything, anytime, anywhere, I'm yours. I'll serve you no matter what. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.